right, we're in Acts chapter 8 tonight. Acts chapter 8, as we're continuing through this book, uh, action-packed Acts uh, chapter 8. We've been talking uh, about Philip. He's one of the seven deacons that was chosen by the Jerusalem church. And boy, did they ever choose their deacons well. One of them became the first martyr to the faith, and then one of them became the first missionary of the faith, which was uh, talking about Stephen, of course, the martyr, and then Philip, the missionary. In chapter 1 of Acts, in verse 8, the Bible says, Ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria. Now, Philip was a Hellenist Jew. He was not prejudiced like some of them were, so he took that call to Samaria personally, and he took it literally. Uh, It would not be a popular mission field. I don't know if Philip had a board that he put on the back of the church. I don't know if he had, well, I guess he wouldn't have had pictures of the Samaritans, but uh, I don't know if he had some kind of uh, push that he was trying to raise funds, but a true mission-minded child of God does not see color, does not see uh, skin, you know, the, the difference in races or social condition. Uh, they just want to get the gospel out. Now, understand that the bad feeling between the Samaritans and the uh, Jews went way back and, and uh, for centuries, and the Jews never accepted them. They considered them uh, actually dogs, uh, racial uh, dogs and religious dogs, refused to have anything to do with them. So what did Philip do? Well, the Bible says he preached Christ to the Samaritans because it doesn't matter who they are, they need the gospel just like everybody else needs the gospel. And so Philip went to preach to the Samaritans. He did not preach Judaism to them, he preached Christ. He did not preach religion, he says he preached Christ. Uh, They already had religion, they had loads of that. Uh, What they needed was Christ. And so uh, it's a blessing to me to see that uh, up to this time, uh, is roughly about five, six years uh, since the Great Commission was given, Samaria was not that far off, and as of yet, nobody had went to Samaria, and Philip did. And that's a blessing to me to see him uh, go there. Remember that Jesus did as well. Uh, he sh- certainly didn't have any racial prejudices. Uh, he went out of his way to reach one of their own. Uh, it was here that Jesus had the disciples when they Uh, When he's talking about the harvest, he said in John 4, 35, Say not ye, there are yet four months, then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, look into the fields, for they are white already to harvest. Who was he talking about? He was talking about Samaritans. Uh, They needed to be saved. They needed to come to Christ just as everyone else does. After talking to the woman at the well, uh, the the Bible says... uh, records for us that they begged him to stay, and Jesus did stay two more days in Samaria there. And those seeds that Jesus planted when he was there, now here's Philip, and he's seeing tremendous fruit when he preaches Christ to them. With one accord, the Bible says, they listened. But we're in verse 14 tonight. Uh, He's been there now. He's had the revival. Look at verse 14. Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen on none of them, only that were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, 
he offered them money. Saying, and you remember Simon, by the way, we'll talk about him in just a little bit and update you on him, but saying, give me also this power that on whomsoever I lay hands, that he may receive the Holy Ghost. Can you imagine the audacity to ask or to pay money for the power of God? Wouldn't it be something if we could pay money and be able to bestow the power of God on others? Well, Peter gave him the right answer, verse 20. Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Father, I pray tonight you'd help us as we look at this passage and uh, the things we can learn from it, we would apply it to our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it's interesting here that at this stage, the apostles felt the responsibility to investigate new movements within the church. And it's only right that they did so. And now they start to get news back from Samaria of all places. Hey, there's a revival going on here. People are getting saved and people are getting baptized, getting right with God. And so Peter and John went to Samaria. It was the sensible thing to do because of the age-old prejudice that was between these two nations. And so they went and they dispensed the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we see there in verse 15, Philip, now he kind of faded in the background, doesn't mention him again. He seems not to have been resentful about it though because as of yet we see no partisan spirit in the early church yet. It certainly is a blessing when a church family united works together toward a common goal and there isn't any worry about who gets the credit or who gets to do the uh, picking of the fruit and who has to do the watering and we, Paul deals with that later. Uh, but he had accomplished his mission. He led the Samaritans to Christ and now uh, they were officially accepted as the apostles came in amongst them. Here are the, the Samaritans, their long time isolation by the Jews was abolished. I love the fact that they might have been second tier people as far as nationally speaking, but in the church, there are no second tier people. Amen? Everybody is, uh, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. It doesn't matter who you are, and we certainly would not want to have, uh, you know, first class and second class and third class citizen in the local church. And so here they were, uh, members of the church. Peter and John wasted no time. As soon as they saw that the revival was genuine, they prayed that these Samaritan believers would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now you know, according to what the Bible teaches us in Romans chapter 8, that we today, when we get saved, we immediately get the Holy Spirit. But this is a transition stage in the early church, and here in Samaria, formal identification of the Samaritans was necessary. And so the prayer that they gave here fortified the fellowship between these people long separated by racial and religious prejudice. These apostles ended their prejudice by praying these new brethren would be equal members of the body. The Samaritans ended their prejudice by accepting the blessing uh, from their Jewish brethren. The Bible says in verse 17, Then laid there their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. In the Bible, the laying on of hands was always a symbol of identification. In the Old Testament, uh, you would bring your offering, you would lay your hands on the offering, you would identify it as yours. And, and then as symbolically, when the offering was killed, it was as though you also would have been put to death for your sins. It was, a, uh, it was a, in, in the place of you as a picture of Jesus Christ dying in our place. By laying on their hands, Peter and John formally identified themselves with the new believers. 
from here on out, they would be one church. They would serve one Lord, one faith, one baptism. What a happy ending to centuries-old hatred and bigotry that they had for one another. Can I tell you tonight, I really believe this with all my heart, Christianity, not liberalism, is always the best remedy to racism, hatred, and bigotry. Not uh, what we see as the answer given to us. Not the Black Lives Matter movement. It's the Jesus Christ movement. And that will do more to take care of those type of issues. We see it right here. God approved all the Samaritan believers uh, who received the whole, by, by showing them as, as they received the Holy Spirit. By the way, spiritual oneness always pleases the Lord. And uh, so we see that here, and he certainly desires that in our churches today. Secondly, we see the detecting of the guilt of Simon. Now, we want to go back and remind you, for those who maybe you missed it or it's been a couple of weeks, but just to remind you about Simon, we met him in verse 9. There was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria. Just before that, he'd been talking about revival talking about joy that was among the people. By the way, joy always follows revival. God's people get right with God. They get right with each other. You know what you have after that? Joy. But then there was a but. There was a certain man. You always have a but at the time of revival and joy. That's always how it seems to be. Everywhere that there is love, joy, peace, repentance, revival, rebirth, there will be somebody Satan has in the midst to stir it up. And that was every, here it happened in everyone except in the life of one person. One man was bound and determined to cause problems. He was used of Satan. Uh, he had been a, uh, a mystical type person, had some satanic powers. Now he had met his match. He had some Satan-given powers, but he had nothing compared to the power of Philip. Now, this Simon, the Bible says, had tried... Uh, is going to be used of Satan to try to stop or to hinder the work of the church. Remember, Satan had tried money as a means of stopping the church with Ananias and Sapphira. He had tried murder in the means of, uh, or in the case of Stephen. Now he's going to try mimicry or imitation. He had a man ready. He had a willing agent here. It seems to be Satan's plan to have this Man, as, as we saw earlier, indicates some form of conversion, and then he's going to infiltrate the church by getting within it. Uh, we've said it many times, it, it's, uh, but it's good to say it again because good thing for us to remember, attacks from within the church are far more effective than attacks from without the church. It's always that way. And so Satan has already tried several attacks from the outside, hasn't stopped anything, now he puts a man in there. Verse 9, uh, the Bible says he had given himself as some great one. Uh, he enjoyed the reputation he had established for himself. He was a self-promoter. He was inflated with pride. He would have loved Facebook <laughs> to promote himself. He had fallen into the clutches of the devil. Can I tell you, whenever God is at work in a church, we always need to watch out for the Simons within it. Satan will always have one of his agents in, at the ready. And Simon wasn't just some quack. Uh, he had real satanic power. He could do real supernatural things. He claimed the title, the great power of God. That's the, what he put on his sign wherever he went. He, uh, he gave himself that title. Philip 
though, was not intimidated by this man. Philip's spirit-led preaching produced immediate results. People believed, they were baptized, and, and Simon saw quickly that the great power of God, if it was to be found anywhere, it was in Philip's preaching. It made Simon and his cheap bag of tricks uh, look uh, worthless, as it was. So Simon lost his disciples. And then he seemed to get the idea, if you can't beat them, join them. Because in verse 13, the Bible says, then Simon himself also believed. Now Simon's faith was counterfeit. He was not won by Philip's message. He was won by Philip's miracles. Say, how do you know, preacher? Well, we don't know in verse 13. But we do know when we get to verse 18. And this is how it works, really, in the life of believers. Uh, your fruit shows whether you are one of his or not. And Simon, it looked good in verse 13. I mean, we, if that's where we stopped, we think, man, wonderful. Here's a guy used by Satan. Here's a guy that is uh, uh, one of the ministers of the dark arts, and he gets saved. It looks like it. But later we see that it was not a real conversion. You see it evidenced in this chapter. So now we get back to verse 18 where we left off. The Bible says, And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given. Watching all that was going on here was this sorcerer. All his life he had dabbled in satanic, forbidden type things. He was addicted to the power that he had known. There's few things more addictive than power. And now he saw the power as they bestowed on people the Holy Spirit. He must have been salivating. Here was real power. None of his imitation tricks. This was real power. He was jealous, no doubt, of the prominence of Peter and John. Imagine if he could convey that type of power, the Holy Spirit, with this just a touch of his hand. Then people would revere him again. Now he would have place in society again. He could be rich. He saw immediately the opportunities that would be open to a man with that kind of power. So what did he decide to do? <laughs> the Bible says he offered them money. In Simon's world, everything had a price on it, much as in the world of Judas Iscariot. Everything had a price. In Mark chapter 14, you remember when Mary of Bethany broke an alabaster box of ointment over Jesus' head. Remember what G Judas thought? Judas immediately saw its cash value, 300 pence, a year's salary, and he complained about it. That was his estimate of it. G Judas would later go on to sell his Savior for 30 pieces of silver. Simon does the same. He sets a cash value on spiritual things, and he offers the apostles money. Uh, Judas decided the Savior had a market value, and now Simon decides the Spirit has a market value. He wants to buy it. It's from this incident that we get the word simony. Have you ever heard that term before? Simony. It uh, means the buying and selling of ecclesiastical privileges. The Catholic Church in the Middle Ages uh, sold indulgences. That's a form of simony. It's wickedness. Uh, the Bible says he offered them money. And on that, in that one act, he betrayed himself and showed what he really was. It's a good lesson for us to separate the spiritual from the physical. You cannot put 
a physical value on spiritual gain, ever. You can't put a cash value on spiritual things. This helps us to understand. Can I tell you that, honestly, if churches only looked at the cost-benefit of running buses, no church would run buses. It's a huge loss financially. But we don't look at it financially, do we? We look at it spiritually. And spiritually, there's great gain there. And so we make a mistake when we look at things physically like Judas did, like Simon did here. What an insult to offer them money. Look at verse 19, and this is what he hoped to accomplish. Saying, give me also this power that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. Now, if it's not so blasphemous, you'd have to read that and laugh. To, to, to buy the privileges of giving the Holy Ghost to other people. He put his covetousness into words. He wanted to buy and sell like a market commodity the Holy Spirit. An amazing. Now, in this age, that the church, again, we can, we can talk about the name. Many people call this the age of grace. I, I like to refer to it as the church age because every age has always been an age of grace. But the Holy Spirit uh, is the resident member of the Trinity on earth uh, during the church age. We get the Holy Spirit uh, when we get saved. And so sins against the Holy Spirit are treated with extreme seriousness during this time during this age, remember Ananias and Sapphira, they had, what was their sin? They lied to the Holy Spirit. They dropped dead immediately. They were excommunicated. Now Simon, or they were executed. Now Simon sinned against the Holy Spirit, and he is excommunicated immediately. Look at Peter's response here, verse 20. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. The gift of the Holy Spirit is the greatest gift that God can give to any man. Think about that. The gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit is a member of the triune Godhead. He's one of the Trinity. Uh, through Him and in Him and with Him, into our imperfect human life, He brings what is purely spiritual. He gives us the power the ability to have spiritual victory. Without the power of the Spirit, we could not bear the fruit of the Spirit. When Adam sinned, the spirit, of, uh, the spirit part of man was extinguished. The human spirit had been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And then when Adam sinned, the Holy Spirit departed. You could say the lamp went out. Now when we get saved, when we're converted, the Holy Spirit comes back to indwell the human spirit, or you could say He relights the lamp. It's the greatest gift God could give us. Seals us to the day of redemption. Money is the exact opposite. Money represents human labor, human effort, worldly wealth. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money, the love of money is the root of all evil. Money is how we convert our talents, our time, and our effort into material possessions and you could say power on the earth today. Simon shows his total ignorance here, spiritual ignorance, into thinking that man's money can buy God's gift of the Holy Spirit. It's crazy. How many people think that today, though, about salvation? Maybe not with money, but with works, with a life, 
with, uh, with, with the way that we live. We think we can purchase what God has. That's why I love the wording in Romans 6.23. You'll notice every time I give the gospel in any form on Sunday mornings, it's always got Romans 6.23 because I love the wording. It talks about wages. We love to talk about what we earn. People, do you talk to most people about whether they're going to go to heaven when they die? Yeah, I think I'll go. I'm, I'm a good person. Earning it. I do a lot of good things. Earning it. We like to talk about what we earn. Well, Romans 6.23 tells us what we earn. Death. Congratulations. You've earned death. That's what you earn with your life. But the gift of God is eternal life. We can't buy God's merit. By the way, Christian, you can't do it with your pocketbook either. You can't earn God's merit or earn God's favor with, uh, with money. Now, we ought to give. We ought to be faithful in our giving because it's uh, in response to God's command. But we aren't, that's not how we earn the merit of God. Peter recognized this man for a fraud. He said, thy money perish with thee. His profession of faith is worthless. His baptism was meaningless. He was as lost as he has ever been because it is an insult to God when we think we can ever earn his favor with what we have to offer. We can't. We can't in salvation. We can't in sanctification. Look at verse 21. Peter goes on, Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Jesus said in Luke 6.45, Of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. What came out of Simon's mouth revealed his unconverted heart. No truly spirit-indwelt believer could have made an offer like Simon made here. Now we say some foolish things sometimes, but there are some things that we cannot say the Holy Spirit within us won't let us say it. The moment Simon opened his mouth, Peter saw into his soul. Look at what he told him to do in verse 22. Repent, therefore. This is what he hadn't done yet, by the way. He made a, convert, or he made a profession of faith, but he never actually repented. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. So Peter immediately does what he should do, and he treats Simon... As an unsaved man, uh, Peter had the heart of a soul winner. And what did he do? He urged Simon to repent. It's still not too late for him to be saved. His false profession could be changed into a genuine profession. His condition, uh, he, he, it could change if he would just accept Christ and repent. That's what's wrong today, I believe, with the easy believism of much preaching today. We have the uh, this idea that you can just make a profession and there it's, it's done. There, there's repentance involved. That's important. I talked to actually somebody just today, asked about their salvation, and the answer was, oh yes, I believe in Jesus. Well, the devils believe in Jesus. doesn't take anybody to heaven, amen? It's not enough to believe in Jesus. There has to be repentance involved. Uh, there has to be conviction of sin and then repentance for it. The first work of the Holy Spirit in the human heart is to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The nature of sin, the need for righteousness, and the nearness of judgment. That's what the Holy Spirit does in our hearts. Without genuine understanding of these truths, what you have today is profession without possession. You have conversion without repentance. You have religion without the Holy Spirit. And you have false conversion. And so it's something we need to be uh, careful. 
you know, I, we, I know Pastor Forsberg talks a lot about it, does it. We need to be giving the gospel. We need to give gospel tract. We need to talk people through the plan of salvation. But be careful that there's understanding there. Uh, we don't just want notches on our gospel belt. Amen? We want to have true conversion experiences. They had that problem back in Peter's day, this easy believism. So Peter preached repentance to this Satan-blinded, money-loving, power-hungry sinner. He preached repentance to him. And by the way, this was someone that everyone thought was a believer. Look at verse 23. Peter is such a perceptive man here. He says, For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. He had disguised it well. He had pretended to be a believer. He had deceived the saints, but he hadn't deceived the Holy Spirit. This man was in bondage to bitterness. What was he bitter about? Well, all of his so-called power, all of his influence was gone. Philip came and he wiped it out with his message of the gospel. So he was bitter. He envied their power. He was Satan's tool and Satan's fool. And it was godly insight that Peter saw through him. Now look at verse 24. Here's, it's interesting here again. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me. Listen carefully to what he says, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. It scared Simon. He was afraid of Peter. He was afraid of the consequences of his own behavior. But you still see no repentance. You see no godly repentance here. That, or, or basically the Bible talks about the godly fear that leads to repentance. He had fear, but he didn't have the right kind. Had he had genuine conviction... He would have prayed himself and he should have prayed the publican's prayer in Luke 8, 13, God be merciful to me, a sinner. But he just said, I hope none of that happens to me. Pray that that won't happen to me. So this is where the Holy Spirit, through the word of God, leaves Simon Magus here. Uh, he's still outside the fold. He's still in his sins. Did he ever get right? I don't know. Uh, we don't know. It seems that he was kind of like King Agrippa. Almost persuaded. When it comes to salvation, that has to be one of the saddest words in the English language. Almost. Alright, they dispensed the gift of the Holy Spirit. They detected the guilt of Simon. And then they declared the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 25. And when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So essentially, what's happening is they returned to Jerusalem. And on the way back, they're preaching the gospel to all these villages in Samaria. So the third phase of the Great Commission is accomplished. He had said to be uh, preach in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and uh, the uttermost parts of the earth. We're up to step three now. They heard the gospel. The stage is now set to evangelize the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's what we begin to see in verse 26, where we see a strange command. The angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south and to the way. They go down from Jerusalem into Gaza, which is desert. Uh, again, it was Philip the evangelist, not the apostle, called to make this move. And this is a strange command. Another part of the Gentile world would now be contacted through an Ethiopian convert. Philip, uh, again, by the Holy Spirit's leading, leaves his ministry of waiting tables at the Jerusalem church to make contact with this man. By the way, it is an amazing reminder from the Bible the value of one soul. 
Oh, I love to see these. Jesus, I must needs go through Samaria for one woman. Here Philip goes all this way for one man. In Mark 5, Jesus went to the country of the Gadarenes. He went, reached one man. Here he sends Philip on a long journey for just one. And we're going to get into this the next, uh, in, uh, next week. And, and uh, it's, I know it's a couple minutes early, uh, but I, I, I always like to stop in places that we're not uh, stopping in the middle of a story. But this is a, a great passage of Scripture, uh, the story about when Philip goes to uh, this Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, it's, an, uh, it's a great thing to see that even though he was commanded to go to a desert country near Gaza, had no hesitation in going. An angel of the Lord left him no doubt where he needed to go, and he didn't pause when he was commanded to do it. He just went. By the way, behind the command of God to go was the foreknowledge of God of who he was going to. This is important for us because if, if you're at all trying to be in tune to the Holy Spirit, and you're trying to do right for God, trying to be a witness, you will have... That little voice that tells you to give somebody a gospel track or to talk to somebody. Go out of your way. Uh, you'll have that, uh, that gentle, still, small voice that tells you to reach. You have no idea what God's done to prepare the heart of the person he's trying to send you to. Always answer that call. Because you don't know what God knows. We might look at someone and think, Phew, they don't look like they want to get a gospel track from somebody. They don't look like they want to talk to a Christian, you don't know that. The heart might be prepared. Who is more unlikely than an Ethiopian eunuch, a secretary of the treasurer to the nation, would be thirsty for the gospel? And yet he was. God knew that. Philip didn't. Philip just obeyed. It's a good lesson for us and uh, for our faithfulness as well. So uh, let us uh, close there for this evening, but it's a good reminder for us to be faithful in everything that God tells us to do and to recognize, uh, as you saw in Simon's life, God's gifts cannot be bought. They cannot be purchased by our life, by our actions, or by our money. By, by all means, our money cannot purchase anything spiritual. And then the uh, faithfulness of God's people in reaching these Samaritans. Father, we are grateful.